welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity Maine, a program of Agape Inc., and made possible by Coffee by Design Rebel Blend Fund. This is a different kind of podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my effort to demonstrate the examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And as you know, this is a conversation about you and your life. And I would love to know, you can start from this present moment, what it's like to be Andrea. At this present moment, it's really good to be Andrea. It wasn't always like that, but I really like the person I'm becoming. Since I moved to Portland the end of May, I feel like I'm in a very good place. I help people. I'm living in sober living, managing a house full of 11 other women, and there's a lot of compassion in that, mm. a lot of empathy. Just kind of, I'm very aware of the personalities or the aspects of people's personalities that I share. Mm. You know, I see a piece of me in every single woman that comes through the house, and I'm willing to see that, and I'm accepting of it, which is a lot different place than I've been before. You mentioned a couple of times, been before. There's a, a lot of story between there and this moment of managing a house with 11 women. It's been a struggle. Yeah. I had, you know, some trauma, sexual trauma as a child. I had a lot of, started having a lot of loss of somebody really close to me passed away in my teenage years. And I don't think that hit me as much as I realize now how much it affected me. I was brought up in, with two older brothers and I was the only girl. And I had to learn to protect myself, survive. So I was a survivor from a young age. And that included not having feelings or not being allowed to have feelings. It just wasn't safe. No, it wasn't. Or I was told that that wasn't the way I felt. So I just got tough, mm. you know, inside and out. Yeah, you could feel the message constantly that whatever feeling you were having was incorrect. Or almost like a, a sort of conflict between the feeling state and the real, which is somebody telling you, some protector, somebody with power telling you that's not what you're feeling. And you could feel this kind of conflict. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I started numbing at a young age mm -hmm. through just being busy and, you know, just not stopping or reading. I did get that from my mom, and I love to read. I've always loved to read. But I started drinking at 11 mm -hmm. and was pretty much on a daily habit by the time I was 16. So there was something in alcohol that really numbed things for you. Yeah. It just made me not feel, mm. you know, and mm. I didn't have to have that confusion about what I was feeling, mm. you know, good or bad. Didn't matter. If I drank, then I didn't feel. And the and the objective was not to feel. Right. And because if you felt then somebody would come along and basically injure you emotionally to say that's not true. Correct. Yeah. And that's how I felt. I mean, I felt like it wasn't safe to speak 
my mm. truth because maybe it wasn't right because I wasn't didn't know what my feelings were and I didn't want to be told or rejected. So I'd just, you know, drink and jump in and out of people's lives and isolate and run away. And I really did that. You know, besides sports kept me in high school to graduate mm. and then sports got me out of small town New Hampshire, but just briefly because I was already drinking so much that I, that took away that and just running. So I joined the service at 21 because mm -hmm. that was another chance to, to run, you know, try that other geographical cure. That whole process of you just can feel the progressive nature of your drinking, you know, starting at 11 and numbing it and, you know, sort of taking off almost and working really hard and being athletic and but also reading a lot and sort of drifting off, just feeling these get me out of here. And the drinking becomes more and more progressive till 16, it's full blown. Yeah. Yeah. I had my first DWI at 19. I put my truck into a tree mm. on purpose. Mm. I'd had enough. And my dad was in law enforcement. So it really, I think that was one of the reasons why nobody called me out of my drinking before. This was kind of obvious. But I did the geographic cure again, left and moved to Texas. And I mm. did. So I really, I mean, I lost my license. But then a year to the day of getting my license back, I was in another accident, totaled another car. But I didn't get caught for DWI because I had a friend pick me up and, you know, I knew the system, you know, mm. knew what I needed to do. So when I joined the service, I was only in the service six months before I went into treatment. Mm -hmm. If you ask me back then, I went into treatment because... I was sexually assaulted by somebody of higher rank, and it was either I go into treatment or he was going to have me kicked out. So, so I went into treatment, and that was it. I mean, if didn't do anything for me because I wasn't ready for it. And you weren't even there for the right reasons. You were there to try to keep your position in the service. Correct. And already the power again was taking over and sort of, utilizing whatever the way they want to utilize you, whether it was emotionally as you were growing up or now sexually inside the service. Yeah. And unfortunately, that wasn't the only time I was assaulted in the service mm -hmm. by a higher-ranking individual, and I just stuffed all that stuff. Then about the same time, I lost my mom suddenly, mm -hmm. and about the only thing that saved me, I had my daughter. I got pregnant with my daughter in 94, and was able to just fight for her, I think. You know, I straighten up or whatever you want to call it, but it, that obviously didn't last. But, you know, the other part about growing up is that there was always somebody who believed in me mm. along the way, which helped. You know, I had a softball coach that was always there for me. I had a couple of teachers. I had a my drafting teacher, Pert Gaskell, was he gave me a copy of the Serenity Prayer, which is a big part of AA when I was in seventh grade. And, you know, all along I thought it was just because he trusted me or, you know, really liked me. And, you know, lo and behold, I know it's because he knew what was going on. So he was trying to get my attention. But he's been a big part of my life. You know, when I went to that first rehab when I was in the service, he sent me literature and, you know, signed it inside. And I still have those books to this day. Uh -huh. So one of the things you've noticed about your life is that these people appeared. They just, no matter what you were going through, they could see through it, mm -hmm. and they believed in you and how powerful that was. 
Yeah, it is. And, you know, to this day, I have my friend Susan, who's been like a mom since my mom passed and who has always been there to tell me, you know, that I was a good mom, that I was a good person. And even when she knew that I was drinking and there were times when, you know, I really made her mad, she was always there to still tell me, though, you know, there's good in you. And um, coming back to this present day, like when I... On March 10th, I was going to take my life again Mm. of this year. And luckily, I was, the cops pulled behind me into my driveway because I was on my way into the house to um, get my gun. And when they told me in the police station that they could bail me out and, you know, I had $40 to bail me out and I could go home. And I just, that's when I surrendered and I said, no, I can't. Mm. And, you know, we talk about it in AA and treatment that you have to be able to surrender and, and give up everything, you know, and try it a whole new way. And so that's what I did. And I started listening to those people mm-hmm. that I've, you know, have known me all along the way. Mm-hmm. And who am I to say that they're not right? Right. They believed in you. Believed what, in if, what if they're true? What if, they, what if that part of them that Susan saw, that the teacher saw, that the softball coach saw... You know, that was you also. And then there was a negative, vicious, negative self-talk that was. Yeah. So that's what I try and take into the house now, you know, with the women, that we all have that good piece of us, you know, Mm -hmm. that we've tried to either hide by putting that tough outer coat on or it's just the way we were brought up. So we don't know any different or any better, you know. And I think that's, you know, like important to understand, you know, my father lost his mother when he was only 16. So maybe he didn't do a great job of, you know, being a parent or understanding feelings, but that's because he didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. So I have to change that cycle with my, my children. Mm-hmm. And it's right there. You're having this kind of sweet moment of forgiveness of your own father. And, and even though he wasn't perfect or whatever, what just wasn't, the kind of father you needed at the time, it was because he didn't have the skills. Yeah. Well, I appreciated that sweet forgiveness of his life. You know that, i just been reading uh, a lot of books on trauma and intergenerational trauma. And, mm. you know, I can see that both my parents had that, you know, as well as their parents, you know. So I'm curious about that because you really have had a whole series, almost every developmental stage of your life has been this very significant trauma, sexual in nature and other kinds of trauma in terms of power over. And this desire, almost this negative self-talk that wanted to die right up till March this year. And, you know, whether you went to the service to try to have some place that was going to hold you and try to straighten you out or do whatever. I mean, whatever that was, it was a positive and then it came again. And I mean, what do you think? the relationship that is to the addiction? You know, I think it goes back to, you know, I, I so we use the, or I use the alcohol and, and stuff as a way of just numbing and getting out of my body. You know, I use that same way with sex later on because I had nowhere to put that, you know, in a box or anything. So, and I've noticed even when I've been managing, if I keep busy, right, and I'm focusing on other people or cleaning the house or whatever, that takes the focus off of me, Mm. you know, and I can use those other things. It doesn't have to be 
a mind-altering substance. It can be, you know, exercise or something. And that just takes, still puts me in a numbing kind of state if mm-hmm. I'm busy mm-hmm. like that. So you know that you're vulnerable to a process addiction or to something that numbs, you know, and that sort of is still with you. And that today it may not be a mind-altering drug and may it, it and or sexuality, it might be just being busy and just running around and running around. What do you do? So I'm learning, and it is definitely progress, not perfection, in that routines and rituals are important. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why, that's why in the military, you know, you have a set schedule. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why in our sober house, we have a set structured schedule. It's like in rehabs and treatments. It's like in school classes, right? In kindergarten or all your classes, you have your homeroom or each class. So, you know, I try and get up in the morning and say some prayers or meditations. I found a higher power this time around, and my higher power is my mama tree. She's a tree I found in Evergreen Cemetery. But looking back through my life, trees were always important. Mm -hmm. And they symbolize, you know, those strong roots that maybe you don't see, but they also touch everything, you know, Mm -hmm. from the ground through the sky. So, yeah, I use a lot of meditation. I try and, you know, do yoga. And we look at the whole mind, body, spirit. So moving your body every day, whether it's walking dogs or walking, riding your bike or yoga or anything like that, And like I said, trying to do some meditation, trying to do some either reading or writing. Big part of, you know, the program I'm working deals with the 12 steps. And I try and write, try and write on a daily basis. That doesn't happen. So I shoot for three times a week and sometimes that happens. But um, just to look at really my behaviors and like said that those processes that I can get back into what I learned this time around, it's not so much. We talk about resentments a lot, right? That, But for me, it's a lot of my behaviors and my fears. Mm. And, you know, my major fear, which I see in a lot of people, is that we don't think we're good enough. Mm. And that holds us back from a lot. And I try and, you know, look to people's strengths. And everybody has them, mm. you know. And that's what I really like about where I'm at now is just watching and seeing people grow and becoming that, that person that they really want to be, mm. you know. I'd like to rewind it just a little bit, and I'm, I'm curious because I we have an opportunity to talk about women and the service, and you know it's been reported that women get pretty sexually abused by power, and about people with higher rank and so on and so forth as a somewhat common experience, and it's really not very safe, even though people go there for ritual and to be of service. And, the country and so on. I wonder what you, your experience was when you think about the whole service. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed, you know, being in the service and that ability it gave me to, to run away and see the world. I mean, I've been to Alaska and Europe and all over. And my honest opinion is that the sexual abuse might happen more regularly be, just because of the setup of power, but I don't think it's any different than what happens in any other company or position that people use that position of power. And the unfortunate thing is, as much as it happens to women, it happens to men too. Mm. I think the men are just more embarrassed to come forward. Mm. But unfortunately, I have friends, you know, both male and female, that have been, you know, traumatized by higher ranking people. 
and that's both in and out of the service. But for the females, what makes it more difficult is that I know for me that I always tried to be tougher or and put myself out there to do more. And I didn't just, you know, sit back and act the weak female or whatever. You know, I went out there and tried to prove myself. And that's a double edged sword, you know, because you're if I overwork, you know, if I do better than some of the guys and that embarrasses them and then they have to, you know, figure out a way to get act tougher you know what i mean does that make sense or, or also put you down or find a way to sort of ridicule you or use some way to so that they can feel better right and i allowed people to be able to do that by my drinking you know and by going out to the club you know every night and some nights blacking out and stuff like that so you know, not to say that any of the uh, assaults were my fault, but I, you know, was able for people to, you know, say things about me if I'm, you know, at the club every night drinking to excess. Right. There was a vulnerability you put yourself in. Mm -hmm. There's no, it's not okay to assault somebody, period. And for you, that you know that drinking put you in this vulnerability for it to happen more frequently. And I loved what you said, you know, from my perspective, this is what you're saying, from my perspective that, you know, it doesn't feel like it's anything different than a corporation or it's it, it's a organization built on power. And power is the issue at hand when people use their power to diminish someone else. Exactly. And the real issue is about power. Because you went to their service to get away and to do something good for the country, to be of service in a way. On the other hand, you had this vulnerability of your drinking that put you in a position, all kinds of position. And somebody else used that. Yeah. And then there's a secret code in terms of holding, you know, the service, you know, holds that we should be secretive about this because we are the service. Correct. You know, going kind of going back to that whole, that power structure, you not to say that I had really good people that were higher ranking that were really helpful, you know, really caring and could see. And those were the people that kind of kind of saved me in a way when I was in the service because they, you know, I had a doctor that was like, you know, you really need to to either go into treatment because he knew what the other ranking person was doing. So, again, it was these people along the way that saw the real me and were empathetic and compassionate towards me. And again, that's what I'm trying to bring into my life now towards, you know, other people. You can always, you say it beautifully, you know, there's this duality in your life. There's these folks who are using their power over or they have poor boundaries. They hurt you in terms of the abuse around emotions or sexuality or physically. And then there's these other folks that are traveling alongside you that they just believe in you. They hold you in this high regard. You're not sure why they do it. And it makes you smile, you know, when you think of them. Mm -hmm. And there's almost like this duality. And in the message today, you have this, like, be aware of which one you're focused on. Correct. Right. It's that yin and yang. So we all have those dark sides or dark moments and stuff like that. And we can either, you know, learn from them 
But that's that, right? That's that compassion mm. when you see somebody else. And, you know, one of my big things that I've learned, especially as being a parent, is that my fear comes out as anger, mm. you know? And so when people are coming at you mad, more than likely that they're f- afraid of something. Mm. And I know that's true for me, that mm. I can catch myself getting mad about something when really it comes back to that fear. And a lot of times that it's that basic fear that I'm not good enough. And so you got to stop, step back and, you know, really ask what's really going on with this person. You can't just take it as face value and you can't take it personally. And I think that's a lot of what's going on, you know, in the world today is everybody takes it personally when it's so not, you know? Yeah. It's that place of seeing beyond, you know, to have, compassion for everyone you meet mm-hmm. because you do not know what's going on with them right and th- there's something that they may not even know they may not even understand but it doesn't matter you know it's seeing that felt sense of them that there's something of value that they're just saying their fear somebody told me once and it really hit me you know how when you're like driving and somebody cuts you off And then you're pissed at that person that cut you off all day long. You're mad at that person that cut you off. But you don't know if that person is on the way to the hospital because their wife or their child Mm. just got into a car accident. Mm. And when that was said to me, I was finally able to go, oh, you know, Mm. why am I letting that person? You know, it was the same thing about being mad. I used to drink at my father or drink at other people all the time. What good did that do? Mm. You know, Mm. they don't care. But here I am sitting in it. And I choose today not to sit in it anymore and to give them the benefit of the doubt and just focus on what I can do better today. You have had these moments where you've taken a car and driven into a tree with the hopes that you would end your life more than once. You had a a plan in March Mm -hmm. to go into your house, get a gun, and end the critical thinking that was going on in your brain. What do you think moved you not to do? Because you're sitting here today with smiles, a rich recovery process, taking good care of 11 other women. I honestly think it was, you know, my higher power. And, you know, whether that comes, it doesn't just come from, you know, my symbol of mama tree. It comes from all those people that believed in me. You know, I took my hands off the wheel of that truck when I was 19 and just said, I've had enough. Mm. And I didn't have a passenger with me. And my passenger side of that truck went into that tree. Mm. And had it been the driver's side, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. I flipped the car. I flipped a a Trans Am with the T-roofs off. Mm. And almost a year and a half right after I did the tree. And I'm here today. Mm. And I shouldn't be. Mm. But I'm short. And my legs caught on the steering wheel. And then, you know, in March, I always had a loaded gun in my room. And I knew where it was, and I was going in to get it and go into the woods. And that car, that cruiser pulled up behind me, and I wasn't able to get into my house. So there's something else, a lot bigger than me, out there. So I have a purpose. And, you know, probably for the first time in 51 years, I believe I do have a purpose and, and meaning in my life. And I'm starting to listen to those people that said, you know, you're a good person, you're a good parent, 
you're doing things right. And that's how I try and look at, you know, the people that come into my life now, whether they're women in the house or other women I meet in the community, that we all have meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. We just need that kind of that boost or that compassion and mm-hmm. that empathy to to be able to start looking at ourselves and see that part that's good. There's, you said, you know, that people need that compassion, that empathy, and most of us are not very skilled at it. We're, nope. we're, you know, fear is, you talked about it, you know, fear is that first thought that I'm going to get hurt by this person or, right, that I don't matter, which is the one you said that, you know, came up for you is that I don't matter and I'm going to fight the minute I hear or feel the idea that I don't matter. Right. That's where my anger is and that I'm not lovable or that I, that the world is not to be trusted. Those are the three whispers of yeah. of the trauma and they really make it very difficult for people to come up with that empathy and compassion. But you've been so clear today in this conversation about that empathy and compassion is what you got from people, even when you believed you didn't deserve it. And now, sitting with a group of women, wanting each of them to practice empathy and compassion with each other as the sort of means to find a way out of that shadow or the negative self-talk or the criticism or, in a lot of cases, the vicious negative self-talk, that they don't matter. And I think key with that, and one of the things I always say to the women in the house, because somebody said it to me, is keep my head where my feet are. You know, and if we do everything in the present moment, we may mess up in the present moment, but that doesn't mean in the next moment we can't correct it. Mm. So, you know, besides keep my head where my feet are, I practice the pause. And for me, that's to, before I reply, before I, you know, answer a question, I take a moment, you know, because it used to be, right? It used to project myself, like, mm. immediately and then run off. Right. You know, and I see that in other people, and I recognize it now. And so I can be more gentle with them and give them time to grow and because it didn't, happened overnight for me. I've been trying to get sober since I was 19, mm-hmm. and here I am, 51. The difference being that this time I have completely and totally surrendered, and I listen and take suggestions, and I am able to see myself and other people, the good and the bad. Yeah, because I'm no different than anybody else, you know? Whether you drink or use a different substance or a different process, it's still the same. It's trauma. You know, it's just a symptom of what we've been through. Right. And for you, it was a medication, something that was just helping you sort of manage it, that pain. And now it's surrendering to the pain and having acceptance to the pain. And that's the courageous act of, you know, being connected to a mama tree. We're all going to suffer. That's life. Mm-hmm. There's going to be suffering involved. How mm-hmm. do you get through it? Mm-hmm. You get through it with other people. Other people who have empathy and compassion. And even those that don't, because that's how we know what empathy and compassion is, right? you got to see the other side of it. Okay. It's got di- to be beautifully said. It's got to be a night and a day mm-hmm. for us to understand yeah. the context. This has been a beautiful conversation. and I just wanted to know if there's something you wanted to say. You know, since you have this moment that you'd like to say to people. Just be kind. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, be able to understand that we all go through things. And Mm -hmm. if you can look at the person next to you and just say, 
hi, how are you doing today? And listen for the response, you know, practice that pause instead of that, hi, how are you as you're walking by and you're not really stopping to really listen. Just listen to each other. I love it. Listen deeply and kindly. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. I truly hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to Coffee by Design and their Rebel Fund for their support to help make this podcast possible. Thank you again for being here. Take care.